Fualsha, 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 Akharjagil, Kajamar Atashev. This is episode 75 of the Rebel Matters podcast, and I find it a wee bit hard to believe that we're after coming this far and making this many episodes together. It's all a big thanks to the lovely guests who come on the show every week and everyone who has been supporting the show and listening to the podcast. A special shout out to all the patrons of the show as well who have been supporting the Rebel Matters podcast through patreon.com forward slash rebel matters. If you want to become a patron of the show, then that's where you can do it and you can see the different tiers of support. This week's guest is Donald Fallon who is a historian but is also one of the people that we met in Madden's Bar in Belfast in December 2018 and he is one of three of those people who have now been guests on the show. The other two are Dan Lambert who many people would know from being involved in the Bang Bang Cafe, from being involved in Bohemians Football Club in Dublin and also most recently for being the manager for Kneecap. And the other person who's been a guest on the show is really Pete, who most people, most people would know through being in the band Lankham. They both have episodes of the Rebel Matters podcast under the belt. And this episode with Donal kind of completes the trio. We first talked about doing this episode about a year and a half ago, so it was good to finally get around to doing it. We talked about the role that commemorations have in the telling of history and discussed a lot of the stuff that happened throughout the years in the conflict in the north. Discussed a little bit about Podrick Pierce, where the blue shirts came from, what role music has in the recording of history and the telling of stories of things that have happened in the past. And we also chatted a little bit about how communities have come through hard times in the past to come out much stronger and more vibrant, which I think is a very relevant thing considering the times that we're going through at the minute. So I think he's really going to enjoy this chat. I certainly enjoyed talking to Donald and listening back to it while I was doing the wee production on the show. The chat with Donald is fairly wide-ranging and it relates really well to some of the other episodes that have already been recorded. So have a listen to this one and then maybe skip back to some of the other episodes that get mentioned during the chat here we're back on track with our we book at the end of this episode as well we took one episode of a break from charles mcclinchy's the last of the name just because i wanted to get the episode 74 out as soon as possible because it was quite relative to what was happening in real time over in america with all the protests and the movement that was building in the aftermath of george floyd's public murder at the hands of uh, Minneapolis police officer so if you want to catch up on the book then just wait until the outro music plays at the end of the chat with Donald and then you'll get the next chapter of uh, Charles McGlinchey's The Last of the Name in the meantime Bonnegie Saldas and Cora let Donald Fallon The day that we met in Madden's bar 
after I'd say we were halfway through loads of pints whenever we met and we had the other half together uh, <clears throat> we got chatting and we mentioned about doing this podcast and we had some deep chats that night I remember uh, and lots of stuff <laughs> has changed since then but um, I wanted to ask you first of all actually so you're obviously from Dublin but you were you're living in Belfast well you were in Belfast up until before this all kicked off anyway How, so and most people would know you I suppose as a historian uh, from doing your slot on news talk and um, also from doing the tours in Dublin I guess and then mo- most recently from being on uh, like hosting your own podcast Three Castles Burning so how did you end up getting into history in the first place? That's a great question. I suppose, how do any of us get into history? And I always make the point that most of what we do in our lives, you know, from the football team that we follow to the pubs we frequent to, whatever else we do in our day-to-day lives, is shaped by a sense of history. You know, we often follow the same teams that our parents follow, or we go to the same things, or we, we develop the same interests. So I think, you know, you may not be interested in history, but history is always interested in you, and it definitely moulds us and shapes us as a people. Uh, my dad retired now thankfully was in the Dublin Fire Brigade for 30 years and had a real sense of history in that job I mean he would have joined in the 80s and he would have worked with people that were there on the day of the Dublin bombs you know in the in the, the 70s people who were at the Stardust Fire and those lads would have come into the job you know at people who would have had experience of the Second World War and the bombing of Dublin and then those lads going back another generation would have met people who fought fires in, in 1916 so there was always a uh, in his job, a continuation, if you will, of these stories and traditions that pass from one generation uh, to the next. And I think in a job like that, like my dad was very shaped by by the history of, of where, he, where he was working, the stations. I remember he told me you could see the log books. Yeah, you could see the books from the lads who went out in 1916 to fight the fires. So he became very interested in history through his job. And I think that was passed on uh, to me. But yeah, this sense that history is in everything we do, from the jobs we do to you know, our, our, our sporting teams, to just our day-to-day lives. I find that really powerful, that, that we're all shaped by the past in that, in that way. It's interesting to hear you saying that, because I've actually got um, goose pimples on my legs and my arm here when you're talking about this, and it's partly because I've been looking forward to doing this podcast with you for ages, but also that thing you said about you might not be interested in history, but history's interested in you, it always struck me that, like, I mean, where's the line when something becomes history? compared to something not being history, but just being a part of your life. It's probably something that I felt more acutely having spent the first, you know, like my my first half, whole half of my life growing up in Belfast and then moving down to the south where things that had to do with the six counties never really seemed like history to me because of the fact that it was something that really yeah. impacted our day-to-day lives. And, you know, the like you mentioned, like a lot of the, the things that people would have heard about on the news. I might have known someone who was there or whatever. So it's, that's not history as such, like when the people are still alive or their family is still alive. It's, and then, but then when I went down to the South and uh, whatever, you make it talking to people about where you're from and stuff like that there. And one kind of standard response that a lot of people would have had would have been, and I'm not really into history. And then said, I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not history. It's still happening. <laughs> I when I was in Belfast, one of the first things I wanted to do in Belfast was go to the uh, the Ulster Museum. And I love the Ulster Museum and, and the gardens there, the botanic gardens, because it just looks so mad, doesn't it? Like you've got like the, the kind of modernist wing of the building and then the old uh, kind of uh, Georgian or early kind of Victorian vibe as well. Like the two weird chunks of building that sit together. And I went into the Troubles Gallery. I really wanted to see that exhibition. 
And I thought there was an unease in the room because most people that were there were from Belfast or were visiting Belfast from, say, Derry. And to them, you could tell that it didn't feel like history. And exactly what you said was happening. They show, have you been in that uh, Troubles? Uh, I, well, I have been there years ago now, like, but I haven't been there recently. They've done it up in a big way. And there's a lot of audiovisual stuff. And you can see people watching archive footage and talking to each other in a way that says, I know that person or that's so-and-so. So that is the great unease, I suppose, of, of the contemporary world. And when does the past become history? And arguably in Ireland, even the revolutionary period, the early revolution, say 1913 to 23, you know, wasn't studied in any great way for a long time because that question hadn't gone away, if you know what I mean. Like you had the border campaign of the 50s, the civil rights campaign in the 70s. And a lot of people were fearful of even touching that early 20th century stuff for fear of being labelled in, in, in certain ways. But I think it's only now that the, the conflict in the North is finally being treated in, in, a, in a different approach, that it's not you know, dangerous current affairs. It's something that can be examined in a, in a historical sense. And it's mad when you go into that exhibition because the stuff you see, some of it is so everyday, you know, that, like the, the lid of a bin, for example. <laughs> is there a bin <laughs> lid in there? The lid of a granny's bin. But everyday items, you know, the milk bottles that were turned into weapons in their own way. The buttons, the ephemera, the posters, the stickers, all that stuff is there now. And some people just can't view it as history, as history because to them it's just such a, a cornerstone affair of their memory, of their living memory of their youth in Belfast or Derry. But the other thing is that, which I think may be a, a part of the, the reason why people have that opinion or, that, or hold that sort of, um, that kind of attitude or whatever to it, is that like, and this is kind of talking from personal experience when people say to me, I'm not into history and then kind of write it off is there's, I think a tendency for people to be terrified that by saying that something is history, that it's now a closed book and that's the end of it. And when you look at what's happening, what's happened in the six counties and what's still ongoing, it's not a closed book, like, because there's so many unresolved questions and that's, that's when I kind of think about like what's history and what's not history. And, I think that it does something inside my head and someone says to me and tries to relegate it to a history book and say like, that's, mm. that's a closed book. So it's historical. But then again, yeah. I suppose that kind of raises the questions, the same question again, again, like what, what even is history? Like, and I suppose a lot of the historical focus on, on the conflict in the North has been shaped by kind of contemporary concerns, you know? So, I mean, you definitely see that with, with Sinn Féin. Uh, you also see it with the DUP. But then other protagonists have kind of vanished, you know. So like the hunger strikes, when we were talking, when we were talking about the hunger strikes, uh, in whatever limited way we were, like we never heard that there were three of them came from the INLA, for example, or like the fact that there were multiple IRAs in 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 Belfast and that the official IRA had you know, a base of power. Uh, all of that is just gone. It just disappears from the historical narrative and it becomes uh, a very simplified thing. I think a lot of the complexity of what happened uh, in the north has gone missing, you know, because those who who write the history of the conflicts from from both traditions, really, uh, are very rooted in in the now, you know, and in getting what they need for now out of out of the past. For sure, which is another re- reason why I kind of was looking forward so much for us to have our chat because there's been people on the podcast so far who have had a very active role in the Republican movement uh, and life in Belfast in general. Uh, Project McCutter was one of the earlier. Uh, episode Shana Walsh has been on it Father Des Wilson who's now passed away was on on the show as well and people like Seamus McShann who were involved in the Irish language movement in Belfast and I think they all give like a nice little 
uh, window into their experience and what was happening at, at the time. And those episodes have been amongst the most listened to and the ones that, that sort of uh, have encouraged the most discussion and feedback as well. People getting in touch, in touch with me. And uh, when we were kind of discussing what we were going to talk about, I think that to maybe try and give a, an overview of, of what happened in the North in terms of like maybe giving an insight into that kind of complexity or the, the main dates along the line, because I think there's a lot of people who listen to the show who are interested in things that ha- happened in Ireland. And like you say, have ha- have got those snapshots, but not necessarily have the really had like all yeah. the pieces joined up some way. Now, I know it's impossible to join all the pieces up. <laughs> we would need a million years to do it. In many ways, um, what struck me when I was in Belfast as quite interesting was people that were trying to hack through the accepted kind of basic, both communities, and it, it, we all know it, it's one, it's ultimately one working class community, you know, divided on whatever grounds. But both traditions, we might say, uh, have their own historical narrative. And I found it really interesting in Belfast when you met people from uh, loyalist backgrounds who were interested in the complexity of you know, Protestantism, Protestant identity in Ireland, going back historically. And I was surprised that you didn't have to push too hard uh, to discover uh, a fascination with, say, the United Irishman, with Theobald Wolfe Tone, with the, the origins of Irish Republicanism within Protestantism. I thought that was really, really fascinating that people were interested in that. But uh, something I picked up in, in Belfast when I was there was, uh, for whatever reason, I think it's probably in a big way connected to the Boston Tapes, People are quite cautious of talking about the past, which has to change. I mean, down in, in, well, across the island of Ireland, we have a thing called the Bureau of Military History, where in the 1930s and 40s, they sat down with veterans of the revolution and they just let them talk. And they transcribed their memoirs. And you can search them online, totally free, Bureau of Military History witness statements. But I think there's a fear in the North of giving those kind of recollections, because maybe people feel, as you were touching on earlier on, that that past hasn't yet become, you know, history. So it's going to be really, really important for for the sake of healing, because I think a big part of healing is just talking and, you know, trying to come to terms with things to record the recollections of, of people that were involved in various things and in the troubles. And that's a very difficult job now because of the way the whole Boston tapes uh, stuff played out. I was amazed as well going down the falls. There's still graffiti about the Boston College tonight stuff. It's still a living scandal, uh, a living issue of debate up there. But getting getting people to talk about what they did and, and what they didn't do in some cases and their, their memories of the time is going to be really, really important. The chronology of the troubles is kind of impossible on one level because, uh, you know, when did it begin? Some would argue it began uh, with the civil rights movement. Others would say the roots of it were to be found earlier on in, in the likes of the border campaign. It's, it's very difficult to say this is the date on which the troubles in the north of Ireland began and this is the date. Uh, on which they ended, the, 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 the dispute on both of those things. But I think the, the best way we're going to be able to tell the story of the Troubles is through oral history. And that's going to be really, really important in the, in the years ahead to just let people talk. And as I say, talking and healing, I think, are very inter- interconnected, but also understanding for the generations that come. When you think about the sort of recollection or <clears throat> recording of what happened during times of conflict in Ireland, post the war of independence there's a lot of written out accounts of what happened and what 
attacks people were involved in when they were in the IRA because of the fact that they had to write the letters to send them the Eamon de Valera to get the pension. Yeah, and, and the, the Bureau of Military History, the witness statements are great, but they, their specific brief was okay to record the story of the Irish Revolution from the foundation of the Irish Volunteers, which was November 1913, to June 1921, which was the truce. So basically they were saying that was the revolution. The lockout, which happened before that, forget about it. Uh, the Civil War, forget about it. I'm not going to talk about that because that's just too too fresh. So that was the view in the 40s, that the Civil War in the 20s was too fresh. It was a wound. You don't pick at a wound because it'll open up and bleed again. And uh, even back then, they just weren't able to deal with kind of contested histories. So what does that mean for us? I mean, I thought it was great in the Ulster Museum that they, they were encouraged. There's a bit at the end where they were asking people, like, um, do you want to contribute to an oral history of the Troubles? That was absolutely brilliant. You know, that you have to... Uh, you have to be willing to talk about it all, not just you know, not just the bits that are easier, but also the bits that are that are difficult. Something that you've kind of alluded to already, which I think is a, is, a, is a good point to bring up, with regards to the narrative that people get, even just for example, when did the conflict in the north start? Like what kicked off the conflict in the north? And that narrative, it's as you say, like it's influenced by the people who are the dominant. Uh, political Absolutely. powers of the day because they need to use that to their advantage to garner support at a grassroots level and to have put their image out to the big world which yeah. has been it's an ongoing thing in Ireland and any other place where there's been a conflict and I, I suppose oh, right. that does kind of chops out some of the pieces that are un- inconvenient or don't like fit with the, the dominant narrative I guess yeah, like I mean, we, we just live through because like in Ireland at the minute, we're living through this decade of centenaries, you know, the 100 years ago stuff, and they're coming kind of ticking heavy. But there's also been loads of 50th anniversaries, which have been quite big. So the civil rights movement, the 50th anniversary of the civil rights movement. And like what's missing, when you look at the civil rights movement in the 60s, who are they? Well, lots of them are like students. Lots of them are like Trotskyites, you know, like people's democracy and stuff. But you just don't hear about it anymore. They're just gone from the narrative. And a lot of the focus of the 50th anniversary um i mean I, I thought Sinn fein and and i thought they did a a real job on that in terms of putting themselves at the center of the civil rights movement in the 60s but that wasn't really the case you know there was a lot of tension between the civil rights movement in the 60s and say the the what became mm-hmm. the provisional republican movement so yeah i mean whoever now leads commemorations kind of leads the past and it was a great joke in bolshevik russia i think it might have been lenin who said it he said that the, you know, the future is guaranteed but the past is uncertain you know it's always the past and history that people try and shift uh, in, a, in a big way so there's a lot of um, there's there's a lot of, of of rewriting of history and i think that the the early stages of what many people consider to be the modern troubles you know the the, the 68 onwards the civil rights movement uh, in the north Loads of those key protagonists are now totally forgotten. Like the likes of People's Democracy, those names yes. don't mean anything to most people. You see, on the People's Democracy, I remember I was about 12 years old in our house in Andytown, and I was flicking through this book. But our house just kind of teeming with books about anything got to do with the conflict or whatever and uh, Irish history. And I was just flicking through this book, and all of a sudden, you know, that when you get to the middle of the book where there's the pictures, and yes. I've seen a picture of the principal of our school getting dragged into the back of a Land Rover by about six cops outside the city hall in Belfast. And I was like, what the hell? And it was Fergus O'Hare, like he was one of the leaders of the People's Democracy. And it was just funny that that was the first time that that kind of came up because by this stage, like we knew who Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness were and Bobby Sands and all the hunger strikers. We knew who you all signed the proclamation uh, 
uh, faced a resin, uh, knew about Wolf Tone, Robert Emmett. But then you're right, though, that just proves, proves the point that there is there are elements of really significant events that happened that have kind of, uh, I don't know how, how you would describe it, but I guess they're just not emphasized as much as other parts yeah. of it. I mean, I remember someone said something that, uh, that always stuck with me around 2016 about how, you know, commemoration is as much about the present as the past. You know, it's always shaped by what's going on now as much as what it's meant to be uh, remembering. And you see that in the, you see that definitely when it comes to the, the 50th anniversaries that we're going through in terms of the, the conflict in the north. But there's lots of them ahead, you know, in, in, in the years to come. And, you know, in many ways, there I think there's, there's even more public interest in some of the 50th anniversaries uh, but the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday is relatively soon, for example. I mean, that'll be 2022. I think there's there's a, a more public interest on one level in those milestone anniversaries than the centenaries, because I suppose 100 years can feel like a like a long, long time ago. I think people um, people are, 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 I suppose it's time now, with 50 years is a long time in, in anyone's life, to be getting the, 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 the real oral histories of that time while you still can, while it's still people are still here to give them i'm going to put both of our necks on the line here and as a way to maybe get the find a bit of direction of where we're going to go into the into the belly of the podcast if we start around the late 60s right and we move forward up until say 2000 or 2005 or something like that there do you want to try we'll try and pick out some of the main kind of big things that are that that happened along the timeline in the north the one that it just amazes me that no one like the, the big 50th anniversary that just passed by and nothing happened was the 50th anniversary of the split in the Republican movement, which was enormous. You know, the split into the provisional and official camps. I mean, there was a lot more going on there than just a question of military tactics. I Until Brian Hanley and Scott Miller wrote that book about the Workers' Party, The Lost Revolution, really brilliant book. I mean, it's like the size of Ulysses, you know, if you dropped it out a window, it's someone on the head, you killed them. The <laughs> but until, until they wrote that incredible book exploring the, the the sticks as they're still known in Belfast that whole dimension of the conflict that just passed me by so I think there's a tendency this is really true with the earlier Irish revolution there's a tendency to view 1916 to 22 in terms of just military stuff this ambush happened this battle happened this ambush happened this battle happened but actually the lesson of Irish history is that there's other strands that are important too you can't understand the Irish Revolution without understanding the social stuff that was going on, you know, the the women's movement, the political stuff that was going on, the rise of Sinn Féin, the general election, all that. And the same is true of the more recent conflict. I think there's there's a tendency to view it just in terms of these uh, milestone anniversaries of death, you know, these awful days mm-hmm. where lots of people lose their lives. And people don't tend to look in the same way at the, at the important political developments uh, within the conflict, which I think are in every bit... Uh, as every bit as important so that spans a whole range of things but you know what was going on within communities may not have been making the news in a big sense but it's still fundamentally part of the story of, of the conflict yes okay. like whenever i think about the main things that we would have been made aware of whenever we were at a very young age which i suppose is kind of just a part of the process when you're growing up in that kind of environment that you're you're told about certain things that happened and that shapes your I suppose your view on the world I suppose in many ways but like uh, August 1969 when Bombay Street was burnt down the split in the Republican movement where the officials and the provisionals w- went their separate ways Bloody Sunday uh, 
the first hunger strike in 1980, the second hunger strike in 1981, the development of the Shaw's Road Guildhacked. Like Bobby Sands himself wrote when he was in jail that this was one of the most revolutionary things ever to happen in Ireland whenever the few families set up a mini Guildhacked on the Shaw's Road. And something that many people don't know about, but the, 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 the first thing that I mentioned there on that list about the burning of Bombay Street, which happened in August 1969, and the families on the Shaw's Road, which is about three miles up the road from Bombay Street. They had houses that got burnt down in Bombay Street, rebuilt nearly within a year of them being knocked down. And that's not something that you you hear widely about, even though that's massive. Like, yeah, it's a family, was- a family of carpenters and an electrician or whatever, and you know, like a, went down and rebuilt all these houses that got burnt down effectively by the state. Well, you were talking about the Irish language movement. I mean, one anniversary that just passed with absolutely no commemoration. I thought it was really strange. It was the 50th anniversary of um, Sarah Radio Connemara in, in the Gweltuck in the west of Ireland, but very connected to Republican history, like Martin O'Kine, a uh, great kind of socialist Republican figure, other people involved in that. And that led to um, Radio Nguelta, because RT were so shamed by the kind of Sarah Radio Connemara uh, stand that they had to respond with it, with, with, with Radio Nguelta in time. All that kind of stuff is so forgotten. The language movement, um, workers' movements very broadly, like the incredible pictures of kind of gen- um, workers. Out in, oh, when workers went on strike in the north, it wasn't always a good thing, by the way. You know, the Ulster Workers' Council strike is a reactionary strike. But all, you know, positive things that were done by the workers' movement uh, in the north during the during the conflict, during moments like the the, the hunger strikes. All of that's, that can be forgotten when you when you overemphasize just the, the, the military um, dimensions of things. Another thing that I think gets gets overlooked when you when you put the emphasis on the military side of things only is the role of women. I mean, the role of women in the conflict in the north is something that uh, there's been some work done on that in recent times. But there's a lot still to be done on you know the role of women as community organisers, the role of mothers, wives, true moments. Of, and of course, women were active participants in the struggle as well. But but the the stuff that gets forgotten is the non-military involvement of of people like workers, like women. Uh, in in the broad conflict, I think a great museum for giving you a real understanding of the conflict isn't just the, the Ulster Museum in Belfast is great, but the Museum of Free Derry in the Bogside, fantastic. And people often label that museum it's the Bloody Sunday Museum, but it's not the Bloody Sunday. It's the museum of a community, and it takes you from you know the pirate radio station that they had, Radio Free Derry, through like they ran their own bus service in Derry. So they had like a workers' co-op bus station. They had a workers' co-op bakery. They're basically living in, you might say, kind of proto-socialist society in the Bogside and in, in, in the Craigan. Most people don't know that. All they know about Derry is 13 people died in one day in 1972. But the, wh- why did that happen? One reason that happened is that the British state were terrified by the kind of community solidarity that was growing up in Derry. And then you go to this museum and you see like a bus pass for the people's bus in Derry. Uh, and it's mind-blowing to think that everyday people who didn't pick up a, an AK-47 or whatever were still active participants in what was happening in, in the north of Ireland. So uh, there's a real shift, a good shift, towards uh, a more inclusive understanding of what happens and just the day-to-day lives of, of, of communities as a whole in, in, in the whole thing. I think that brings up a, a really, really important point and a, a very, I think, like a, opens up kind of a unique enough door in terms of conversations that have that the conversations around the kind of the north and what happened there you mentioned about the, the sort of co-ops and stuff like that and also mentioned the Irish language rights movement i think that's maybe a good example to start with but 
I think that when the vast majority of the people think about the Irish language movement in Ireland today, that it, it's not as such by the majority, not really thought of as a real radical movement, but there was a radical and um, very determined full-on movement for the kind of the resurrection of the Irish language and the rights of people to speak the Irish language. You can see that now, like, in more modern well, times, you see the Dr- and Dram Jarug, which have got, have gone gone onto the streets in their in their thousands. But then you're talking about the the sort of so, the socialist side of things, or where there's co-ops and all, and that happened in Belfast as well. Seamus McShann and the group of Irish speakers that started the Gale Talk in the Shaw's Road had uh, a, a co-op uh, petrol station up in. Yeah. Uh, in White Rock, which is actually where Seamus, that, that petrol station got attacked and a young girl got shot dead and Seamus got shot in the stomach when, while he was working there. In fairness to the, um, to the, the, the Ulster Museum, when, when, you, when you visit their Troubles Gallery, they display a series of posters uh, from the conflict. And one of them, I was really surprised to see it, is Martin O'Kine. And there's great words, you know, is he uh, Avyokin Nguelga, Avyokin the Heron, is he Avyokin the Heron? Av- you know, that the, the resurrection of Ireland is the resurrection of the language, the resurrection of the language is the resurrection uh, of, of, of Ireland. And I thought to see that on the walls was absolutely incredible because definitely it, it was true in 1912 and it was true in 1972 that people are politicised by culture. You know, what I mean? you don't like, you don't wake up one day and you're an Irish revolutionary. You know, you're, you're brought to that point through your involvement in various things and principally, I think it's definitely true. One of those things is one of those things is culture. And I always love, I use it all the time. I think I've probably used it three times in my own podcast. I've always loved the line Bertolt Brecht said that, you know, art is not a mirror held up to society. It's a hammer with which to shape it. And you find that for a lot of people involved in, in the Republican movement in the 70s, in the 80s, they came through it through these kind of various cultural pursuits. I think the authorities definitely have always understood that, that there's a connection between the involvement of people in the cultural sphere uh, and the and the political mm-hmm. sphere. I think for that reason, they they tend to view anything in 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 the kind of language movement or more broadly with a sense of suspicion. They think it's always dominated by this sense of kind of uh, radical republicanism. But in Belfast, I, I thought it was great to meet people from the other traditions that were uh, that were learning Irish. I was amazed, like chatting to Linda Irvine, for example, about the, the very active community of Guelgors that is is building up in places like East Belfast, where where no one would expect it. But when we had a good chat about this, she, she made a great point that the 1911 census, uh, the, the All-Ireland census 1911 is great. She found loads of Irish speakers in what we would now think of as deeply unionist areas uh, of, of Belfast. So like, while I think there is a definite connection between politics and, and culture, at the same time, I think it has been great to see the... Um, it's still politics, by the way. It's still poli- it's a different kind of politics. You know, if you're learning um, the Irish language on Shankill Road or something, it's still politics. It's about community spirit and community engagement. It's a different kind of politics. And in terms of the the broader interest in the language in recent times, it's still politics. It's still driven by a sense of community uh, action and community solidarity. Just bringing people together to do anything uh, is always good. But I found that to be the most... Uh, the, the the best surprising thing I encountered in, in Belfast was like the work of people like her. I did a podcast with Linda before. Uh, it's one of the earlier episodes, I think maybe around uh, 30 odd or something like that there. She was quick to point out something that which actually I was already aware of, but that the Red Hand Commando use and La Viaragabu as their motto, yes. some of the murals <laughs> of our East Belfast and all. Um, well, 
funnily, they also the Red Hand Commando also used um, Cucullin quite a lot. Oliver Shepherd's the uh, the death of Cucullin, which when you're down, when you're when you're up, I should say, because you're in Cork now. When you're up in Dublin again, uh, in the window of the GPO, there's that great statue of Cucullin with the black raven on his shoulder, and you would definitely know that from going up in Belfast because it was on so many murals to kind of local volunteers. But the the loyalist community took it and ran with it because they liked the idea of Cucullin as the they call him the the ancient defender of Ulster, and there was a a Red Hand Commando uh, mural which said. Cucullin, native, uh, ancient defender of Ulster from, from native Irish attack. So for me, it kind of showed how the past can be kind of, you can kind of have Cucullin in whatever shade you want them in, you know. And that's true of so much of Irish history. So much of it can be reinterpreted to suit whatever whatever agenda you have. But I think, look, it's always good when when loyalists are engaging with things like Cucullin or the Irish language, in whatever way, whatever way they're doing it. But yeah, Love Darek Abu is, is quite funny. The Love Darek to me growing up in Dublin, um, always meant like my dad wore a red hand badge because it was the Federated Workers Union. The union that he was in uh, was descended from Larkin's Union, the Irish Transport General Workers Union. And the way it worked in Larkin's Union was you paid your membership membership dues, and the badge you got because four quarters in the year, so each quarter the badge changed to one of the four provinces of Ireland. But during the lockout in 1913, it just happened at that time they were wearing the red hand badge in the union, so they kept it. And the Citizen Army wore the red hand badge, even into the Rising, like they would have worn on their uniforms. And I always thought about the red hand badge growing up in Dublin as the symbol of Larkin, Connolly, the ITGWU. And uh, then I became aware it's just a totally different thing, you know. Like <laughs> I, I, I always wanted, I always like toyed with the idea of a, a Citizen Army red hand tattoo, and I'm glad I didn't get that before at the Belfast. The club that me and my brother Carver ended up playing for down in Cork which is kind of part of the reason how I ended up down here in the first place. Napiercy have got the red hand of Ulster as their crest as well, but they removed the thumb from the hand to represent the six counties. And the the idea is that the thumb will be replaced back on the hand whenever Ireland is being Very good. Very re- good. reunited. You, hear, you raised a really interesting point there, which would be cool to talk about, about the the crossover of cultural and language issues and politics because a lot of people who were involved in the Irish language movement in the 70s, 80s, 90s would, I think, a lot of the time maintain that they're separate from uh, any political entity, namely, I suppose, the Republican movement. That there's a, and Of course, there's crossover there, but like a, a, as a movement that the Republican movement didn't have any ownership over the Irish language movement, which I think is a very important thing and also relates back to that thing you were saying about being Irish speakers being in the 1911 census and stuff like that. And even like Ari, uh, Protestants being involved in the, in the United Irishmen. Like, yeah, I, I get what you're getting at here. Like in terms of, is it possible for these languages to be apolitical and or for these movements to be apolitical or, or cultural? I don't think it is. I think our whole lives are political. You know, every aspect of our lives is in, in some level political. And the same thing happened in the early 20th century where you had people like Douglas Tejeda, Douglas Hyde, we said, oh, no, the, the Gaelic League is not a political instrument. You know, it's only, it's only a cultural instrument. But, of course, the people in it were politicised by culture. That's inevitably going to happen. People like Patrick. Patrick Pierce was a home ruler at one stage who became radicalised and, 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 and uh, developed a deep sense of, of republicanism because of his engagement in, in cultural issues and the language movement. So I think it's impossible to keep these two things separate you know, on one level because our lives don't allow that. We can't just break things up into... Uh, in the neat little boxes and say, 
Uh, I'm political Monday at five o'clock when I'm at a meeting about politics, but I'm not political Tuesday at seven o'clock when I'm at an Irish language meeting. You know, we're we're political people by our by our very nature. I think that the uh, the crossover is inevitable because it's human nature that these things become politicised. Even football becomes everything we do becomes shaped by by the politics. I suppose that we that we carry. I suppose that the thing is that no particular political entity can take ownership of a language which is kind of the important point in that because they ended up what you end up with then is like the alienation of the rest of the population who aren't involved in that political yeah. political movement uh, one awkward fact from irish history is that like the the most significant fascist movement that ever emerged in ireland altrian hashiri architects of the resurrection what a great name to their credit <laughs> altrian hashiri emerged from a branch of the gaelic league you know so it's not always a good thing that culture and politics are inevitably uh, interconnected. It can be a bad thing too. What's happened in in their case? They developed, you know, very curious ideas of what it meant to be Irish. Like Altrian Hashiri emerged from a branch of Conor Nguelga in Dublin. So, I mean, it it, it can be a, a two way street. Really, it's not like the left has an ownership over culture. You know, people are there's always battles going on in the cultural sphere that are that are political, and we don't we don't win all of them. Just. There's one point that I came into my head just a minute ago there to, to, to add to that point that you were making about the the various fronts of a, a revolution or community that are on the struggle or whatever, in terms of it being there's the armed side, there's of course there's a political side, there's cultural side as well. When I did the podcast with, with Father Dales Wilson, um, not, not long before he passed away, like we had a really good conversation about some of the initiatives and projects that they had on the go in Spring Hill House that had to do with adult education and helping people apply for jobs and learning skills and stuff like that. And it really connected the dots up for me because of the fact that we knew from a very young age that the way to get off your knees is through education to in many respects mm. so that you can like you can stand up for yourself much better obviously then when you when you know what's going on around you and even just the self the sense of self self-worth that it gives you totally totally one of the one of the best things i was ever involved in and uh, i'd love to do it again was going into prison and lecturing people on history uh, i did a little mount joy prison uh, Hotel Mount Joy and Dan Lambert, who you interviewed in your podcast, does a lot of good work in Mount Joy with Bose. With the, I think it's called the Bohemian Foundation. They go in and they get the lads kind of involved in a bit of football. But I thought lecturing in those spaces was really powerful because it did give me a sense of the the power of education to transform the lives of people. And one thing that happened, which I thought was really deep, uh, was we were talking about the 1916 Rising. Of course, one of the leaders of the Rising was Sean McDermott, and maybe the one of the most deprived streets in Dublin historically is Sean McDermott Street. And I remember someone came to a class and afterwards he said, I'm from Sean McDermott Street. And I never knew anything about Sean McDermott. And as far as I was concerned, his name was just synonymous with poverty in Dublin because it meant the street that I that I lived on. And I've met some of those lads since they came out. And like, to be honest, I mean, not all of them. It hasn't worked for all of them. Sometimes you meet some of the lads on the street begging. But you also meet other lads who went on and, you know, went back to do a FOSS course or went back to do an album leaving cert and stuff like that. So you're totally right. The connection between education and and uh, and changing your life is absolutely enormous. And history is a fundamental part of that because I think it gives people uh, a sense of identity, a sense of place in the world. That to that guy, Sean McDermott no longer just means the badge of shame of the street that he grew up on. It's someone to be very, very proud of. I remember going back to the school days. I remember I was 15 or 16 sitting in the classroom in Manskill Farshaw on the Falls Road 
we just moved over to our new building, which is where the school is now, in Chat Garden of Anne, Beachmount. And uh, our, our history teacher at the time started telling us this story. And uh, the, the, the he was telling us about uh, a young fellow who got lifted and got sent to jail with a trial when he was 16. And I remember I was sitting at the back of the class and one of my mates, Neil O'Donnell, who listens to the show all the time, so... He, like he might remember this, but uh, maybe, maybe not. But uh, he was sitting at the front of the class and I knew that he knew our, t- our, our teacher's story, personal story. And I also knew it and he knew that I knew it. And I remember he just turned around to me like we, and we just looked eyes and we were like, holy shit, he's talking about himself. And uh, we were like that kind of stuff. It's not <laughs> curriculum education. It's a different form of education that can have a very profound effect on on you, like whenever you're a part of it. Like, yeah, it was, it was kind of a special moment when I think about it now because I suppose when you're a kid, like you're aware of what's happening to a certain degree, but sometimes you're not aware of the gravity of the situation that you're in or the impact. Like we were in a school that was revolutionary like for all intents and purposes and still is the way that it was set up and the way that it fought for its right to be a school and to get recognition of the state and the way that the early parents entrusted the uh, the founders of the school to look, look after their children's education in a time where unionist politicians were coming out and saying that to send your kid to Mount School Farsha was tantamount to child abuse so uh, it was just moments like that there when you're like, whoa, that's that. It's a, it was a kind of a powerful moment, you know, in a way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I the the rise of the Guelph School in the north as well is something I found. Even in the the rise of the Guelph School in the south is something I think is really interesting, a historical moment that we're living through at the moment. I went to Guelph. I went to Guelph School in Padraig in uh, in Palmerstown, and then Glasgow which moved to Lucan in uh, West Dublin. Probably most famous actually because. Uh, Conor McGregor went there. <laughs> That's probably how school is most famous. Liam Rush also went there, actually, one of the, one of the greatest Dublin hurlers uh, of all the time in my class. But even in the in the South of Ireland, the Centre Kids to Wales School at the time that I went to one was considered a bit strange. Uh, in West Dublin, the school in Palmerstown, a lot of kids would have been Valley Fermat, and there would have been a perception that it was a very Republican thing to do, it was a very uh, radical thing to do. And I think at that point, the school was in prefabs, as Wales schools in the South generally were. Uh, now they're quite almost middle class in this area. Anyway, it's funny, isn't it? How things change that perception, how things change uh, in terms of in terms of Irish language education. But yeah, like now, now uh, the Kalashkar Schliffer, for example, is a beautiful, enormous building in in, in Lucan. Uh, but when when we were first put into those Guelph schools in West Dublin in the in the nineties, you were uh, yeah, you were regarded with some suspicion. I think <laughs> it's just funny. a couple of years ago, I was walking in the town in Cork here, and there's a a really famous bookstore. Uh, called Lane Russell on Albert Plunkett Street was closing down. It was a hundred years in business and it was closing down in the hundredth year, which was a pity, I thought. But I said to myself, sure, I better go in here and see what it's like on the inside because it's going to be gone next week. And uh, I went in and I actually have it here. I found this book on the shelf, which is a, a, it's a, a collection of Podrick Pierce's letters. So uh, it's called The Letters of Podrick Pierce, letter of PH Pierce, and I seen it. It's like, whoa! I was like, look at that, and I turned it around, and the price was on it, seventy five euro. I was like, oh shit, I haven't got seventy five euro. So I went over and had a cup of coffee, came back, and went in and just asked your man, look, how much will you sell me this book for? And he's like, fifty quid or 
I was like, I right, take fifty quid for it. But it was real fascinating to, to read about the setting up of Skolena and Skol Asia yeah. to the the boys' school and the girls' school that, that Podrick Pierce set up. And that school is not far from me. I mean, I, I'm in um, in Kimmage. I can walk to that school about probably half an hour, twenty five minutes from here. And growing up, the perception of Pierce. Uh, even in the Gwell School, I, I had a very conservative principal, actually. We probably had very different experiences at Gwell Schools. And uh, the perception of Pierce was always a very conservative figure. Uh, he's kind of utilised now by the likes of like the, the National Party. He's presented in a certain way. And the more I've read on Pierce, the more I realise that's total rubbish. And what makes Skolena so amazing to me is how ahead of its time it was. Like the kids referred to the teachers by their first names, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, the kids studied things like the Quran. They studied the the work of uh, Tagore, who was the great Indian playwright and poet of the day. It was the most progressive, enlightened school in the country. And Pierce was really like a, a, an internationalist who was bringing the world into the lives of these kids, not only teaching them Irish, but teaching them enormous emphasis on physical education, uh, enormous emphasis on like theatre, acting in the school. All of that was just lost in, in how we were taught about Porrick McPierce. He became nearly a buzzword for like bad nationalism, didn't he? Like Pierce is presented as this uh, ultra reactionary Catholic Ireland figure when nothing could be further from the truth. Funny how, how these figures in history can be manipulated in, in, in different ways. When I was reading through that book, it was like flicking through someone's emails or something. Like it, it nearly felt like I shouldn't have been doing it. Like he grew up in a really uh, unusual household. He actually, he has a great line. He says, you know, that's what made me the strange thing I am, my Gaelic mother and my kind of English liberal father. And uh, yeah, the way Pierce was manipulated and the perception of Pierce, even now, I think, even on the left, Pierce is like a bit of a bad word, you know, uh, when the truth is, is much more, much more diverse. The thing that struck me about the schools in particular, as soon as we were talking about it, was the fact that they weren't just replicas of the English mm. system of schooling except just through the medium of Irish they were kind of a, a, a separate form of education in itself and I think that maybe not directly linked to the Gale School movement but I think that that's one of the big draws of the movement I, I can say it, I can say yeah. it from personal experience in Belfast anyway it's like the College de Farsha which is which is as it's known now it was Manskull Farsha whenever I was there wasn't the same as the other schools on the road, except just learn, speaking in Irish. It was a different mm-hmm. approach, a different kind of philosophy behind the school, I think. The question was ideological for Pierce. You know, what is this school supposed to do? And even if you go up there today, and the next time you're in Dublin, you should go and have a look around it because you can walk around the grounds. Of the, even now, actually, the school is obviously closed as a museum uh, because of COVID-19. You can walk the grounds and it's a big green space. You know, there was a real emphasis on nature. How many schools in the country were teaching kids about the various types of plants and trees that were around them? You know, it was absolutely phenomenal. And the the line uh, in 2016 in the Daily Telegraph, you know, a rag in England, they tried to present Pierce as this kind of ISIS-like figure who you know, trained all these young kids to go out and, and, and die for Ireland, to kill and be killed for Ireland. But the language that Pierce was using, all this stuff about blood sacrifice, Everyone was saying that, you know, every general from one end of Europe to the other during World War One was talking about the glory of going out and killing and dying for your country. You know, it was turned on its head beautifully, the you know, Dulce et Decorum Est, but it was the language, the lingo of the time. And actually, when you look at Pierce's school in terms of even the English literature that they read, they got a greater sense of English literature than most kids in, 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 in state schools would have got. They were got a grounded, full education for people like Thomas McDonough, 
Pierce. It was a, a revolutionary school and a revolutionary approach to education in its own right. And that was one thing about my school that I did like was that they, the, 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 about the only thing our principal took from Patrick Pierce was the, the breakdown of the relationship between the teacher. We referred to people not as Mosh or so-and-so, but, you know, if your name was Owen, you were Owen, Mentor Owen. And I think that breaking down of barriers between the educator and the educated is really, really important. For me, that's the big legacy of, 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 of Patrick Pierce. I have a question I'm going to ask you. It's kind of skipping forward a little bit in time, but um, I want to ask you a question about the blue shirts and how that all unfolded that um, the blue shirts became a thing in Ireland. The blue shirts are presented in Irish history and I think are remembered in our kind of collective memories and Irish fascist movement. In truth, I think there was something something different. I mean, the, the leadership of it were, were people that were definitely influenced by kind of continental fascism. So uh, you had people like uh, the former Guard Commissioner, Ono Duffy. Uh, and I think there were people that were afraid of the changing of the Guard in Ireland, like 10 years after the, the treaty, 10 years after the birth of the state, the, the coming to power of Fianna Fáil. And the most surprising thing about the Blue Shirt story is that Fianna Fáil, and this will shock many listeners, were a socially democratic party in the 1920s and 30s. They talked about building public housing, building infrastructure, uh, you know, tackling unemployment. Like De Valera and Countess Markovic was a founding member of Fianna Fáil. She died of Fianna Fáil PD. Fianna Fáil had this kind of vision, a socially democratic idea, and that terrified the old order. Now, they looked at Fianna Fáil and went, they're communists. So after the, say, 10 years after the formation of the Free State, then Fianna Fáil came into power, and then Fianna yeah, Gael then were in opposition, and that's well, where the blue shirts came out of? The treaty party, uh, the people who done the deal with the with the British, and I mean, they were real. It, it, they became, whether they were at the beginning or not, as a debate, but they kind of became imperialists in the sense that they were happy with Ireland within the, the empire. They even would attend things like Remembrance Sunday in London. So the, the old order, like the, the W.T. Cosgraves and the like of the first government of the state, they became quite happy in the imperial setup. And then you have the anti-treatyites, the likes of Dev, Markovich founding this party, which talks a different language, which talks about, you know, clearing the slums, building houses, uh, stopping the land annuities payment, which was a disgrace, revitalizing the Gwaeltop thing, but they said they'd do it, they didn't do it. But all this stuff that Fianna Fáil talked about doing, I think the old order looked at them and went, Jesus, Fianna Fáil are communists. And the line that they pushed was that if de Valera won the election, the same thing would happen as it happened in Russia as it happened in Mexico, where the left was, was very powerful. So actually, the poster that they ran in 32 was, keep the red off our flag. And it was a tricolour with a red flag, and it said, you're both, you're both coming again. Uh, so the anti-Fianna Fáil stuff reached this mad fever pitch. And I think in rural Ireland, farmers got this real fear, that like, Jesus, if Fianna Fáil get into power, they're going to collectivise the farms. It's going, to be, it's going to be like Russia, we're going to be living on Soviet farms. So the Blue Shirts tap into this fear that exists in kind of lower middle class, a small farmer in Ireland who thinks that his land is about to be collectivised by you know, a load of Soviet Fianna Fáilers, which sounds funny to us because Fianna Fáil, to our generation, are the party that wrecked the economy. They're the reason that our friends live in Australia and live, you know, we associate Fianna Fáil with kind of reckless hyper-capitalism. But back in the 20s and 30s, the view was that they were going to change that, that old rotten order. And I think the fear of having what you felt you had earned your farm, whatever it would be, taken from you by the Bolshevik de Valera, 
was strong enough that they kind of organized themselves in, in, into what they call the blue shirts. They had some of the traits of continental fascism, the, 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 the uniform, for one thing, like the brown shirts in Germany or the black shirts in Italy. Uh, and definitely there's a reason for that, like O'Duffy and Ernst Blythe, people that are at the top of the blue shirts, they were ideological fascists. They believed in fascism. They believed in eugenics. They were anti-Semitic. They were anti-communist. But I think the rank and file, generally speaking, weren't. I don't think Tom, Dick and Harry in the blue shirts knew enough about fascism or maybe could even spell fascism. I think they were just terrified of Fianna Fáil. And if you look at it, how history played out, they were a flash in the pan in the sense that how did they get on in the Spanish Civil War? Abysmally. Like the blue shirts went to Spain and came back. Brendan Bean joked about them by saying they were the only army in human history whoever came back with more men than they left with. You know, <laughs> <laughs> have a clue what you were doing in the battle when it came to it. And they're just gone. And no one ever, a couple of years ago, a blue shirt came up for auction and the, the Little Museum of Dublin bought it and they have it on a mannequin. It's on display. But I always think when I look at it, why is there not more of these? Because there was tens of thousands of blue shirts. Like the IRA at the time was numerically tiny. The IRA was down to below 5,000 people. Uh, way, way below 5,000 people. And the blue shirts were this enormous tens of thousands of men body and some women body and no one talks about them they've just been relegated to history because it's a bit of an embarrassment and, and no one wants to say my granddad was a blue shirt so they're they're totally relegated to, to historical memory but it's their great it's their great fortune that they were led by such a moron in the form of Ronald Duff. they are more dangerous leader they they could have become like O'Duffy um was a, a battling battling alcoholism all his life he was secretly homosexual he actually was in a relationship with Michal McLeamore who was the great Irish actor of the day and very progressive, which is kind of funny. But O'Duffy could never really be the fascist leader that he wanted to be in his own head. You know, he, he viewed himself as a kind of little Hitler, but he, he, it wasn't in him. I suppose there's an element of n- not that much uh, talk about the, the blue shirts and that, that whole movement because of the fact that, like, the same thing that you mentioned earlier, that, like, they're part of Fine Gael's history. Yeah. And yeah, Fine Gael are in government now, so... It that doesn't... time, remember very romantically, the, the, you know the old saying that the, the victors write the history books. Probably the Spanish Civil War is the example of where that isn't true, because the Spanish Civil War is remembered totally from the romanticism of the left. You know, we think about George Orwell or Hemingway or Charlie Donnelly, the young poet from Ireland, from Tyrone, packing their bags and going off to fight this heroic battle. And Christy Moore's song, Viva la Quinta Brigada, which everyone in Ireland knows, means that the the rank and file of the left are kind of names that we know. We know names like like Charlie Donnelly, Tommy Woods, whereas the, the lads who went off on the other side are totally forgotten. So for me, the Spanish Civil War is this weird moment in human history where the victors didn't write the history, uh, but the left, the, the moral victors, if you will, because everything the left said would happen actually happened. They said, look, they're bombing Guernica today. They'll be bombing Britain tomorrow. And people laughed and said, no, they won't. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened with the rise of fascism. So it's a, it's a very rare example of, of the, the, the losers, in this case the left, uh, taking over the historical narrative. Here, interesting fact about Christy Moore's song, Viva La Quita Brigada. In years ago, I, could, I figured out what year it was there the other day, but I can't remember it now. But it was basically one of the years whenever the Short Strand in Belfast was under severe pressure from the the Loyalists during marching season. It was in the 90s, some 90 eight or something like that or 97 maybe and uh again another thing that now donnelly who's getting a second mention on the podcast today will, will know about because that that's where, where he is from uh we christy Moore came into the community hall in the short strand and did a wee concert and 
while he was talking, he was saying that he was walking around the Strand with Nell and a few other comrades up there. And uh, Nell goes to him, you know that song, I've Evil Akita Brigada? You have a, you know they say uh, Jim Shrini from the Falls? Well, like Jim Shrini was from the Short Strand. So <laughs> you have to change it. <laughs> and if you hear Christy Moore singing that song now, it's Jim Shrini from the Strand. Does he change? He changed it. He changed it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always maintained that you could, you could write the social history of Ireland from the seventies onwards using just Christian Moore songs. I mean, he, he's at the cutting edge of everything. And I interviewed him once for uh, the blog I used to write, and it was amazing talking to him about the seventies and the eighties. He had a great story. He wrote an album called H Block. Uh, great cover, great painting uh, by I think Thomas Ryan. Maybe I, I'm open to correction on who the painter was, but it's a, a prisoner on his hands and knees in the cell. And the LP has Stephen Ray reading Bobby Sands poems and Christie's at his best on it. It's yeah. one of his masterpiece LPs. When I interviewed him, I asked about that LP. I said, why is that LP so rare? He said, oh, when we when we launched it in the Brazen Head, the special branch showed up and they confiscated every single copy of it. He said, we didn't have the money to print more. So there's very few in circulation. But he said, years later, after a gig, a guy came up to him and said, will you sign that LP? And it was one of the branch men who'd been on the writing party. <laughs> Just... They're going to be popping up on eBay sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, Christie was involved in everything. And Christie was involved in Artists Against the Amendment in the 80s, campaigned against the Eighth Amendment. Uh, he wrote songs about, you know, things that just no one would touch. Uh, and Love It and The Grotto, you know, just amazing stuff. You could you could yeah. do an entire social history. For sure, that. like The Stardust as well. Oh, it's extraordinary. Uh, songs brought Christie to the court. That's true, what you're saying, because it, the Christie Moore songs in particular, other... Other bands as well, like we mentioned, uh, we mentioned Bick McFarland and Cruncher and the Wolf Tones and Dubliners were there as well. But in particular, Christy Moore, like when we were young teenagers, when we started listening to Christy Moore, when we really started asking questions about what was happening, you mm. hear a song about Bloody Sunday, you hear a song about like the, the people's old MP or the time has come. Uh, even other things that happened outside of the North, like the, like the Stardust and you, st- you sit there and asking questions, and even the, sometimes the song doesn't tell you everything about what happened, but it tells you enough to make you curious. Yeah, and then you yeah. start asking questions, Ar- which is then Ar- when you get the real Ar- what's happened. International stuff as well, like Victor Hara. Yes. I mean, incredible stuff. But, but the popular, again, going back to what we were saying earlier on about Patrick Pearson, how someone can be stripped down and can become uh, a two-dimensional character with no complexity. That's also true of Christy Moore, I think, on some level. People, the, the popular perception of Christy Moore is, you know, don't forget your show if you want to go to work, listen to Varna, ride on. You know, when they invite Christy Moore on the Late Late Show, I, I love how he doesn't play those songs. He'll always try and play something like, akin to the, he actually, the time has come, which he began playing again in recent years, uh, because he, he, he seems to dedicate it to Mark McGuinness a lot now. But he, he'll always try and play one of those more politically focused songs, which I think is a great testament to him, that he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be remembered as the bloke with the funny songs. You know, he wants to be remembered as the the, the man who had a, a point and a, a, a message to get across in his music. When we were doing a little bit of planning about what we were going to talk about on the podcast here, um, we probably kind of both mentioned about chatting about community and the how communities kind of come through times of hardship and I think it would be a, a nice thing to talk about considering the fact that we're in the throes of a pandemic. We're in pandemic times and mm. uh, a lot of people are going through a hard time now. And like I suppose well, it's, it's probably quite obvious now by this stage of, of the chat that, that that history is something that 
there's a lot to be learned from for current mm. times. Well, we're living through history. And I don't think I'm the only historian in, in the world who would say that I prefer my pandemics 100 years ago, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a lot nicer to read about the Spanish flu than to live through COVID-19. <laughs> but the lesson of this time, I think, has been that despite the perception, I mean, people, when, when this crisis began, uh, in Dublin anyway, the immediate response of the authorities was, shit, this is going to be bad, and to board up everything in town before the looting hordes arrived and, you know, that... There's going to be a breakdown of uh, of social decency and we're going to see kind of widespread criminality and burglary and you know, people scamming each other. And actually, for the vast majority of, of, of the island of Ireland, for nearly everyone, and that hasn't been true. And what we've taken from this, I think, is actually that there are very strong community structures in you know, right across the island of Ireland from GAA teams that are no longer able to train, but who now do like in this area, deliveries of food and goods to older people. The, the community resilience and the community spirit of the COVID crisis has been absolutely inspiring. And the line, it, it, it says a lot about politics, that like the obsession of the authorities, the party in, in power, has been on kids getting 350 a week who used to make 190 a week at 200 a week. Like, that's the big story. The big story is that a couple of thousand kids across the entire island of Ireland might be making 100 quid more now than they did a few weeks ago. That's not the big story. <laughs> the big story is that most people rally together in a really, really, really positive way. And true history, that's been true too, that, that when, you know, when the, pardon the French, but, you know, when the shit hits the fan, people generally uh, do rally together in really, really inspiring ways. And in this part of Dublin, and I think right across the, across the city and right across the island, I've been just amazed by how decent people have been through. And I mean, I think we're probably passing wave, the first wave of this crisis. It, it will inevitably return. As kind of as these kind of highly infectious diseases without a vaccine will come in waves, and this will happen again. But I wouldn't be as fearful of a second wave now as as I would have been early on in this crisis. I would have said this is going to be a nightmare that will last maybe a year to eighteen months, uh, and society as we know will break down. Actually, society was built up, and a society that we didn't know came back in a big way. I think it's been really, really inspiring in, in, in that way. There's two things that spring to mind there, but the first thing is. You were talking earlier on about the, the Dublin in the 80s and how the, the kind of community came through a very hard time there and kind of ended up in a better place, in a way. Yeah, I mean, this city in the 80s was hammered by mass immigration. It was hammered by heroin. Heroin hit Dublin in a big, big way in the 80s. And this place where I live, Crumlin Kimmage, was decimated, absolutely destroyed by, by heroin. But the... The 80s for me is also just a remarkable time of, of, of community resilience and, and coming together. And the big fear people have now is, oh, the economy is going to collapse and going to tank and our cities will go with it. But actually, the lesson of the past has been that sometimes when, when the economy does tank, uh, whose economy is it anyway? It's not our economy, you know, when the economy does tank, that spaces open up, opportunities open up for different things to happen. And this city in recent years, to a lesser extent, it's true of Cork and Galway and to a lesser extent, again, it's true of Belfast. Like Dublin has become a city that very few people can afford to live in. People are constantly being pushed out further and further. Uh, many people I went to school with now live in the likes of Drogheda and commute into Dublin. Just the thought of ever owning a home in Dublin then is just a distant dream. And uh, I think that we could see a reconfiguration of things, you know, in, in the aftermath of this, that, you know, rent is going to fall through the floor for one thing. But as units in the city, like all those hotels they want to build, like the skyline of Dublin is just a sea of cranes, for hotel development instead of building public housing, instead of building things that are more urgently needed. 
So there's a reconfiguration, I think, now of, of society in the immediate aftermath of this, where things that we tolerated for a long, long time and probably shouldn't have are going to collapse, and we, you know, we can influence what emerges uh, in the in their place. Why do you think, from a historical point of view, like looking at other times, whenever like t- the shit hit the fan, basically, um, that communities pull together in times of hardship? I think because they don't have faith in anyone else to deliver things, you know. So, like the three fifty a week COVID payment that was given in the in the, the twenty six counties. And by the way, one issue with that that I think is enormous and wasn't properly addressed is the fact that many people who live in Derry, you know, or who live just over the border in the north and work in the south, were left in the lurch. They didn't get that, which I thought was wrong. But overwhelmingly, I'd be quite pro that payment, giving people that three fifty a week. Uh, a week. I thought that was a very important thing, kept people. Uh, above the breadline, but they couldn't even do that without fucking making a uh, sorry, pardon the language, without making a political dig a few weeks later, saying some of these kids used to earn two hundred quid a week and never given them more. So I mean, the, the state doesn't like the poor. That's just a fact of history. <laughs> it never has. It quite happily put you know young working class girls into into Magdalene laundries. It quite happily left young boys in you know industrial schools. It left communities like the prior mentioned Sean McDermott Street fall into rotten ruin. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's, its first instinct isn't to protect its, its people ever. But people themselves have a different instinct. And I saw that locally. And I think that's going to be even more important going forward because they're not going to give everyone 350 quid a week forever. You know, they're not. The state is going to withdraw a lot of the supports that are there at the moment. And community structures are going to become even more important, I think. Is there an element of it in in what we're seeing today? And like, as I think you said it, that like you see another society kind of coming forward, a, a type that we've kind of lost touch with in, in some ways. Is that because of the fact that one thing that we have seen, which we can say with a certain amount of certainty, like that the grip that the capitalist system of economy had on us as individuals and as a country was pretty much loosened with the, with the, you know, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic? Mm. Well, I mean, it's going to change the noticeable thing in 2008 when the economy tanked was that Dublin became a more interesting place to live in the, in the sense that, uh, I mean, the mayor of Berlin once had a great saying about Berlin. He said, we're poor but sexy, you know. <laughs> you know? Like, the, the economy was broke, but it was a kind of interesting place to live. And I noticed in the city centre, around 2009, 10, 11. I was very young, but you could even get a sense of it then that, uh, you know, kind of creative spaces that hadn't been there mm. since the 80s. People remember the 1980s in Dublin. They remember Temple Bar. To me, a new Temple Bar is just a nightmare. Temple Bar is essentially Disneyland of Dublin where tourists go to drink eight quick pints. But in the 80s, Temple Bar was a really exciting place. Dublin was broke, but because Dublin was broke, you could get your hands on a, a, a former warehouse for next to nothing. And the Project Arts Theatre was born. And the Hirschfeld Centre, the Gay Liberation Centre, was born in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. So, like, often when when these things tank, the city centre, a lot of it comes up for grabs again, you know. And in 2008, that was definitely true, that more creative people could afford to try things in town. So hopefully that'll be one outcome of this, that the... uh, you know, that the, the monopoly in town will be broken. And it's true in every city, of course. It's true in Cork, but also true in Galway. Sure. The cities all look, the city centres all look the same now, and the, the appeal of them is, has faded very rapidly. So I'd love to see cultural spaces back in the city centre in the, in the aftermath of this. That could be one positive outcome. Well, I remember being in a temple bar with my mum when I was 
about f- five or six years old, so that must have been about nineteen ninety or so. And we were down there every weekend, going into like these like hippie vegetarian restaurants where you get all your food for about two quid or something to get there. I don't know how much it cost back then, but it was cheap anyway. And everyone just sat on these really big long benches and just kind of had together, which some of probably wouldn't get today down there. I don't know. But the other thing, which I agree with about that thing about uh, spaces becoming available in the aftermath of a downward trend of the economy or a crash of the economy, whatever. I moved to Cork first about 10 years ago. Um, 10 years at the start of this year and the area that Ackley is in now is just beside St. Finbar's Cathedral around about Barrack Street and that whole side of town like when the recession happened in 2008 like a lot of those places became empty and derelict and when I look at where we are now we have that space now for the last three or four years or whatever and we're able to do something very creative there and there's kind of uh, loads of little independent cafes and stuff after opening up around there they that's all happened in the last six or seven years or whatever because of the fact that the, the cost of doing it on that side of town and that part of town was much cheaper than doing it elsewhere boom bust uh, economics means that you know it, things will from the from the respective capital always get better and then when the economy booms again who's the first to go it's the likes of those people you build up these brilliant alternative spaces whatever and then once they're booming you're gone again and that, that that's happened in dublin too in recent times one of the big booms in, in dublin i think the historians of the future will really grapple with this one is the tech industry all these companies just move in and just transform areas like rings end for example like a historically working class dublin community is just unrecognizable and you know, the rent has just gone through the roof and you've like, google workers in, in abundance and the like so i mean the the the, the appearance of the city has rapidly changed through through boom times, but it'd be interesting to see what happens now. I mean, we're, I think we're going to look at a, a, a re, one economist on the radio here recently in, in Dublin said that 2008 uh, was was a crash, but this is a pileup. Well, that's a that's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> As like you said, this is going to be worse than than 2008. Like Whoa. the, the of this could be just un, un, unprecedented. It does highlight the importance, which is something I think that we, well, I hope we will see it whenever the lockdown starts to lift properly, that people start to support their local artists and their local, small local businesses. Because I think that if there's one thing that has been quite clear is that like a lot of those small businesses have really helped the communities in which they're based over the last number of months whether it's in terms of like redirecting their energies to do something positive within the community or treating their staff in a respectful way, which is a lot more than you can say for a lot of the bigger companies that have come into Ireland, like for Debenhams, for example. Yeah, Um, well, I mean, I tried to map some of that. Like I was just thinking in the future, what will be useful to historians who want to understand what we've just come through. And I thought, you know, one thing would be, um, to try and give a sense of when businesses closed. Like, that'll be an interesting piece of data for someone to have in the future. You know, the likes of the Temple Bar pub remained open. Like, you know, even in, by, I think, day three, when we realised we were really in trouble, when there were cases in, in, in the in the 26 counties, pubs were starting to close, like Grogan's, for example, of their own volition. They just started right, it's time to shut up shop. And the businesses that remained open, uh, and some throughout, I think that's the kind of stuff that will be, that shouldn't be forgotten, but people should always remember the, the the very often very local, very small businesses who made the decision to shut up early. As soon as things kicked off, we closed Ackley, and before anything was announced about the COVID payment, we had 
agreed that all of the staff would be paid until we ran out of money and then we would see where we were at. But you're right though, because in that little window where things are starting to get serious and the COVID payment being announced, there were a lot of companies that were all came out straight away and said they weren't going to be paying their employees. And then they, that kind of faded away into the background because of the, the 350 euro thing came out then and they were kind of covered in, in a way, I guess. But I remember that about a week after we had closed, Starbucks was still going in Cork City. Like, and mm. I remember thinking it was pathetic, really. But I also remember thinking that I hope that people remember the smaller businesses now, like there was there's a there's a really good food place Rocketman right next door to one of the Starbucks in town and they they closed because out of respect for their staff and out of respect for their customers and they're a small local business the big history book that will have to be written in the future on a, on a local level how individual cities and, and towns responded to it but it was rem- I don't know if you've walked well you're probably fairly central we're a little bit outside the city you know we're not that far uh Brendan Behan moved out here with his family and said, he said, it's not suburbia, it's Siberia. But it was a bit unfair. It's not that far. You can walk into town in about, in about 25, 30 minutes. You know, talk about history. People always think that places are further away when they're talking about it 50 years yeah. ago. You know? Yeah, that, that's true. That's, I don't know why that's true, but it is true. But I found walking through town just extraordinary. It feels like 28 days later or something, doesn't it? It just feels otherworldly. But uh, I did it early on as things were shutting down, I would say. And it was, yeah, it was, you kind of noted the little businesses and you keep them in mind in future and hope that they, that they all make it true. Historically, like how do cities change? Because we're, say people who are in and around the same age as us or older are, I think, witnessing the second cycle for the big Irish cities when I can say for sure for Cork and you've already mentioned about Dublin being full of cranes and stuff like that that's the kind of thing that we've seen pre-2008 in the lead up say what people call it Celtic Tiger and then we had the recession after 2008 where there was no building happening at all and now we are at the peak of building in this country now again where you're starting to see um, more big shiny developments going up in the cities and I'm in particular thinking about the the port area in Cork where one of the oldest bars in Cork, the Sextant, had closed down last year because it was bought up by a big company so they can build a big block of offices or whatever there. So from a historical point of view, like what, what kind of cycle do, do cities go through? Like, have we gone, is it, is it a constant cycle of gentrification and then crash and then it starts again? In terms of the cycle of, of Irish cities, I think the biggest issue that is surprisingly understudied, um, not just by historians, but probably sociologists, it's a bigger question for them, is uh, who lives in cities. And increasingly, very few people actually live in Dublin. Like, that's that's what you see now at the moment because of COVID. Like, the, there's no one in town. You know what I mean? Because, like, no, no business are up, so there's no one in town. And you don't have um, communities in the city centre as you would have had historically. So working class housing, uh, public housing, good public housing, should be in the city centre as well. And historically, in my mind anyway, I, I've always wanted to live near in or near a city. I think being as close as you can get to the city is a good thing. For whatever reason in the Irish psyche, uh, it seems that city centre living became synonymous with kind of poverty. You know, the, the, the flats in town, uh, the tenement, Dublin and the like. So I think that's one thing, like when, when visitors come here, they always ask me, oh, where do Dubliners go in, in Dublin City? And like the answer is at a certain time they go home. That's the answer. You know, they don't they don't live 
in the city. So I'd love to see a change in that. I'd love to see people moving back. In Dublin, they always say Dublin is between the canals, you know, what's between the Royal and the Grand Canal. I'd love to see people moving back into the city. And there should be schools in town. There's a handful of schools in inner city Dublin, literally a handful. Uh, I'd like to see more community in the city. That's one, one of my favourite cities in the world is Berlin because I love how you can walk through the streets of Berlin and people are going about their lives. You know, you see the school kids, you see the playgrounds, you see life. Uh, I'd love to see more and more of that, more people going back into the cities. That's true all over Ireland as well. That, you know, we, we need to make inner city living something that we don't view entirely negatively, which is totally unfair. Because some, some of the best communities in Ireland were in those inner cities. And then what they did in the 70s, especially the 60s, and well, more the 70s, they moved people who had a sense of community in the inner city out to distant lands. Like, whatever about this place, Crumlin Timmock is not suburbia, as Brendan Bean said. It's pretty much a city suburb. But they moved people out to, like, Tallaght. Tallaght was, one, by population, Tallaght was in, like, the top 50 cities in, in Europe. It was an enormous place. And there was just no services whatsoever. They made the same mistake on the north side. So it's, I'd love to see a, a movement of people back into the city. I think that's going to be very, very important to reclaim the city and not, not, to, not to surrender the cities entirely uh, to foreign capital. And do you think that that's going to be more likely now in the, after, in the aftermath of the, of the pandemic? Or? Um, well, I think the, you, the, a flight of capital opens up all kinds of possibilities, you know, in terms of, of the, the, the decreasing power of, of, of foreign capital in the city is a good thing. But no, I mean, it looks like the government that we're going to have is... is more or less the identical government we've had since the birth of the state. So I think there would need to be ideological factors in changing something like that. But it can be done. I mean, in the 1930s, the, the housing architect of Dublin was a hero of mine. Uh, Herbert Sims was his name. And Sims built beautiful blocks of flats in town. He was really into the, the Art Deco style. If you're ever in Amsterdam or Rotterdam, you look at the flats, they look a lot like these houses in Dublin. And uh, he believed that people should be able to live in the city, that they worked in the city. Uh, they socialise in the city and they should be able to live there. And that idea of building top quality public housing in, in the city, for me, is one of the big battles that remains to be to be fought. Ono Brin, uh, Sinn Féin TD, there should be Minister for Housing. Ono Brin just wrote a book called Home, which is, it's done really well, actually. It was a great commercial success. And uh, in that book, he, he makes this argument time and time again, you know, that public housing should be the issue of issues and the city should be the, the terrain where it's built. I'm thinking just about what we were talking about earlier about songs kind of giving a social commentary of what happens in the country. I'm thinking about the Dubliner song. I remember Dublin City in the rural times. Like, Great song. And it, it, there's so much in that song. I, I, I never really listened to that song on any deep level, Pete St. John, because it's a real pub song here, you know, and it's belted out in Hill 16 and stuff. And um, it's become kind of just nostalgia. But when you read the story of Luke Kelly, you know, being forced to emigrate to Britain as a young man, going to Birmingham, working, coming back. It's a very deep song, you know, the, the haunting children's rhymes, all of that. And uh, it's a real inner city song. He was from Sheriff Street, the northern inner city. Uh, but like there are no communities really left in the inner city. And that's something that we should be trying to change. It was Luke Kelly from Sher- Sheriff Street? He was, yeah. He was from just uh, the, the cottages where he lived just off Sheriff Street had been demolished. And the statue was pretty much, you know, in that neck of the woods where, where his family were from. I really like it, by the way, the big head. Uh, yeah. I didn't like it when it was unveiled. Uh, I remember actually the first time, I think one of the first times I actually saw it was coming back on the bus from Belfast because the bus goes up the uh, up the, the Liffey. I'm thinking, oh my God, look at that. But when you see it up close, I think it's it's actually really nice. You know, it's big and it's uh, it's brass and it's confident and it kind of, it's very fitting for Luke Kelly. It's larger than life. It's great. I haven't seen it in person yet, but I'll make it a point to go and find them next time I'm up there. 
But there's mm-hmm. another example of what we talked about a bit in this podcast of people that are um, like Christy Moore, like Paul Pierce, that are or Paul Pierce, who are just broken down into like bite size. You know, this is an easy Luke Kelly to, to, to digest. The whole radicalism of Luke Kelly, one of my recent podcasts was about Luke's politics and how deeply committed he was to kind of radical politics. He's someone who I think has been very much diluted. Where do you think that is? I think it's just easier for people. You know, I think it's just easier to, to have a uh, folk singer, to have, you know, don't forget your shovel, Christy Moore, but not to have the time has come, Christy Moore, you know, because that makes you think about more complex things. But I think the reason these people were so brilliant is that they were complex. You know, well, Christy's still with us, of course. Christy's like 73 and, and looking good for it. But Luke, <laughs> I think they were such complex characters because they thought about the world, you know, because they were shaped by all of those different factors. But uh, yeah, I mean, Luke Kelly, the communist, is not something that any of us were taught in school. Is <laughs> no, I suppose not. For what died the sons of Roche, and I've noticed that that's become popular with kind of um, the Irish far right, which is a very numerically small thing. It's kind of... It almost feels like a waste of time talking about the National Party or something because they don't really exist in any significant way. But they often use for what died the sons of Roisin, you know, the, the Luke Kelly monologue and try and present it in a certain way. But like, it's about foreign capital. It's about foreign investment. It's not about foreigners, immigrants. You know, Luke had this very clear class consciousness. And when you listen to for what died the sons of Roisin and you know the politics of Luke Kelly, it's something very different from, you know, we got rid of, we got rid of one strange language. Now we're faced with many, many more. He didn't mean the immigrant in the, in the corner shop. He meant the, the German developer buying half of Dublin. I think that that ties together really nicely some of the, the main aspects of stuff that we've been talking about. like the So the, the historical side of things, the social narrative that we get from songs and the importance of that culture plays in, in any really aspect of history and especially like in, in revolutionary times. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I have to say, I think you're... Um, the diversity of your podcast is great. You know, there's the, the, the different the different voices that you that you get on. And they're all conversations that are that are worth having uh, in terms of where we're where we're going. And I think for historians, obviously we do a lot of thinking about the past and we make our living in, in in the past. But we should also think about the future, you know, and think about um about how these things uh, the word they like to use is intersect, you know, where they where they where they meet and what happens when they meet. I think that's very, very important to always always think about. Thanks very much. Uh, like I think the thing that the thing that just keeps the, the podcast moving forward is just um asking people that are really interested to talk to to come on and on and do it. Like the way we're doing it now. <laughs> this was a year and a half in the making. I feel like we could probably make another few as well. Um but here Thanks a million for, for, for doing it anyway. We, we won't leave it till the next pandemic. No, definitely not. Here, just before <laughs> um, we wrap it up, how can people follow what you're doing and, and keep track with, with all the stuff that you have right. out there? Okay, so my podcast is called Three Castles, Bur- Three Castles Burning. Uh, the Dublin Coat of Arms is three blazing castles. And I suppose it's um, like yours, I suppose it's, it's main selling point is its diversity. So if you dig into it, you'll find everything from Seamus Ennis, the traditional musician, to Brogan's Public House, to Luke Kelly in England. And I um, I just try and keep it keep it diverse and keep it entertaining. So that's where the main place people find me is uh, at, at the Tree Castles Burning podcast. And I, like you, I always say, you know, if you want to get in touch, do. Uh, I think that's what these podcasts are about. You know, the beauty of them is that they're they're nearly like dialogues, you know, with your, with your listeners. That's always healthy. Unreal, don't we hear? Carmelo Magna Cara.
What's happening, lads? This is chapter 9 of Charles McGlinchey's book, The Last of the Name, and this chapter is called The Parish. This parish took its name from a small three-cornered piece of ground outside beside the old church and street. That was likely the place where the old monastery was built long ago. It must have dated from the time of St. Column Kilia, for there is a rock in the old graveyard with the track of his two knees in it. I often heard people being cured by rubbing the water in those two holes on whatever part was sore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Near that piece of ground, there's a height called Drum the Scallop. And the old people said that was the place the monks used to dry the briars when they would be thatching the monastery. It was a thatched roof that was on it. The monastery well was one in one of the tree corners, the one next to the church wall. There's not a trace of the monastery left now, although at one time 350 monks lived there. The family of the Morrisons must have had something to do with the monastery, for there's a, a height in their farm called Chample Jass, and at funerals the corpse was carried around that height three times before it was taken to the old graveyard. My grandfather was taken round the height when he died in 1840, and lots of others since then, till people stopped burying there. The monastery must have been destroyed between 1600 and 1700, for there was a minister here with the Protestant church about 1700. The present church, now in ruins, was built in 1801 by masons named Thomas. The first minister I heard of was Donald McLaughlin, who died in 1711. He had a brother, Patter, who was parish priest here at the same time. The old people had lots of stories about these two brothers. They were from Glenelie and were going abroad for their education when their ship was wrecked. They were rescued by a Protestant gentleman they fell in with, who offered to educate them if they turned. Donal agreed and later became the Protestant rector of Clanmany and built Dresden. Patter refused and continued to the continent where he was ordained and became parish priest of Clanmany. He lived somewhere about Cross Connell. Their old mother came out to see them one time and to try and get Donald to come back to his faith, but he only mocked her. He was holding a service in the church at Strayed when she put her head in the door. As soon as he saw her, he went down the floor to meet her. She made out the door again, and he called after her, Awahar, re, re, no very in alert. Mother, run, run, or the devil will catch you. Early in the penal times, shortly after 1700, there was a father, McColgan, who served this parish and the most official one. He was on his banishment, and one time he called at a certain house for something to eat. It was run by Protestants, but the servant girl was a Catholic. She wanted to give the priest a hint to clear out and wait for nothing. So as she was roasting a herring, she tried to warn him of the danger he was in by saying, Remember the herring that was never caught with bait. He didn't take up, take her up, so after a minute or two, she got a chance and whispered, If you want to remain alive, throw all away from you and flee. He made off without waiting for anything to eat, and before the herring was roasted on the other side, the place was surrounded by yeomen. It was at some seaside place this happened, for the yeomen put stones through the bottoms of all the boats for fear he'd get away that way. Only for the girl, Father McCulgan, would have been captured. At this time, of course, there was no chapel or place to say mass in, except at the mass rocks built about the hills. There are mass rocks in every part of the parish. There's Lachna Haltura, Gara and Tigerch, the Altar Rock, Lach and Afrin, and as many more. The priests had no settled way on them till about 1780 or so till Father Cor came here in 1784. Before that time, wandering friars went about and said mass here and there about the hills. The people would get word beforehand where to go, 
I heard that a father McGinn used to say mass at the altar rock above in Butler's Glen. He came from Dona on horseback. He would be an uncle or granduncle of Dr. McGinn, afterwards parish priest of Buncrana and later Bishop of Derry. It was before 1784 that the friars went about. They were a droll lot of men and I heard old rams about them arguing and bantering and joking with the people. One old ram I heard mentioned two of them by name, Friar McLaughlin and Friar McGeegan. This is it. Ursin Rahar McLaughlin, a regal hardo, Chegi hon Afrin Amorach, Ursin Rahar Agigan, Lena Gujgihe, we were nearness night live. Hanantu en Irna Wumsa and Lena, Hanantu en Irna a wine womb. Jawan and Irna, I gave to him Lena, this morning case in the Brighra. Kajemsha hon Afrin, Gukum Blena, Agrahime hon the chapel. An Achiglini men in Brega, Ursin Rifra, Lishen Shin, Kinyi de Irna, Awanish. Said Friar McLaughlin on his rounds, Everybody for Mass tomorrow, said Friar McGeegan on his breezy way, and bring along your hanks of yarn. Manish replied, You'll get no hank from me this year, not a single one. The friars have us taxed too heavily. I'll go to no Mass for a year, but I will go to church where I'll hear all the lies. Then the friar said, Keep your hank, Manus. Another time one of the friars called in some house over about Rashini. Arsina Brahra, Kawal the Water, Huishi Anun Garuski, Igri Igra Igiri Da, Lakur Stucky Dusa, Viri in a Ton and Kalyak Vigkron, Namaran Sawala, Igaturna, Tanismo Luihibui Fadib Dinti, Na Kurhuda Arguna. Said the friar was her mother, she went over to Ruski, running and rushing, to look for a dye for my stockings. She was always a runner of the yellow hag. Can she stay at home at her spinning wheel? There's more ashes about the house than would dye a whole dress. The best known of all the friars was the Breher Naduka. He was also called the Breher Du, the Black Friar, and lived about Carrigan Brachy and the Isle of Doa. He was the parish priest before Father Cor and died in 1784. The owner of Carrigabrachy years ago was Donoghue Moore in Cashlan, the late Patrick Quigley's grandfather. The Breher Nuduha was an uncle to this Donoghue Moore O'Doherty. It appears that three brothers of them were friars. One of them was martyred in the Diamond of Derry, another was professor in the Irish College in Louvain, and the third was Breher Nuduha, the Breher Du O'Doherty, who belonged to the Dominican Order. All the old people had a song about the Breher Nuduha that he composed himself, and it used to be sung at big nights and weddings and bottle drinks all over the parish. There's nobody living now has the song but myself. This is it. Bwala and Mully was Kionarda is even Aline Barnaman. Chiefa Urus Wood is Mamlin, Krok Nadala is Yomiam. Agrega Wanya Lag is Krianach, Glachna Bradach, Shinis Drum. Lagan Curry Killis Clara is here in Anach, Adol my Dram. Sakari Gavrachi, a Vimekhedur, in Samelsha Shale Gaul, Egan Kashtan Bada Luime, Esser Ilan Glass, Eji, Bavin Maglor, Vimekhiskracht, or Tri Brega, Isin Rashini, a Gom Kyol, Nama and Arige, Gina Bregen, Is Hil Niketi, Nakrome Bia, Vimer Meshke, a Grok Nagiha, Ogsmahi, a Rergamal, as hus guglan the minchach, in shin, orum hen erinu anal, be couple of budgel then spurred shinuim, be shed linked in shin. After as far aku 
a viru chrena, and ruin fein us kyun magal. Lahiri yali vimen ordu is gan en erlog ogum lajil. Firme makasogas makluka na loihe si stroke igmahiv. Len me kalin a gudjma vrugawim, a jimmy si ruam, a wugach wee. Jirian bala lanan torme, a shual me ruam, marbwad nagihe. Hui me garuski, unser granye, hadur hui si karta or maskor. Haru ogum akshan wig is had the grana, dagme or laureate is woolmen board. Durchi lomagolhan shul is near Hershey ard or maglor, akdolme budjel or in shrage, chilu is mahai or in wahara war. Dula may lajin is gregish, a wad and eshes may golanun, bayas, maharawad, a shud malenye, a chi hairless in arjakran. Female narda mach, a gimmerch carti, dol may lanche, oni nail, or mahak the nurse or in wahara ard, the may lan arasi the myra warge. In Malachalan, as Shinga Hakram, by Vien Lamig Janu Putch, in Inishuan Ganstad Naskisha, a wad sanihe, as Meg Janu Kyol. Balcha Biges Balchamura, Sankhudges Muaku, Ugera Anus, a Kahri Trasna, as Ekter Fonage, Shinga Ach, Nahrume Rio. The words of the song are hard to make out in places, but it goes somewhere like this. In the town of Mullach, above Arda, it is pleasant on top of the bends. You can see Irish and Malin and Kruk Nadala many a time. And Craigawini lag and Krina, Glak Nabrada from there to Drung, Lack of Hurry, Killing Clara, and over in Anna I drank a drop. In Carrigabrahi I was a hundred times and through the sandbanks drinking, down at the castles I often lay, and out on Glashidi Island my voice was sweet. I was often fishing in Trabregi. And in Rahini, Rasini, I often sang. I swam the sea of the Breden, and hundreds thought that I was drowned. I was drunk in Crocknagee, and up late last night. Then I went up to the Glen of Minchi, and it was there I was treated foul. I wanted a couple of bottles of spirits, and they were filled there on the spot. But the man of the house was overwise, asked, Had I the money? Fornest my shout. When the moon got up, I was in order, but hadn't a farthing on me to pay. Then I found my coat and cloak lying torn at my side. I followed a girl who stole my shoes from me, but she made off across the bog. Then the town rose out, and Chase came after me, but I sailed on ahead like a boat before the wind. I went to Risky, over to Granya's, but she would not give me a quart on credit. I had nothing but an old wig and a battered hat, so I threw them down and wrapped the table again. But she paid no heed to me and told me off to be. However, I got a bottle out in straight, and then my fill and more up in Maharamor. I learned Latin and Greek many a year ago, year ago now, for I'm getting on in years. I had fine clothes at the time in Charlie's house in Ardacran. I was in Arda playing cards and drank a health to Ononil. And coming down through Mahara, Mahara Ard, I spent the day of the races with Mary Ward. In Ballyhallion and up in Ockram, I always liked to go on a spree through Inishowen without stop or stay, far into the night, and I singing my fill. Small towns and big towns and most of them all from Derry down, except Karu Trasna and the bottom of Fanad, two places I was never in. When Father Cor came here as a parish priest in the year 1784, the persecutions must have been passed, for at that time the Mass was being said for the whole parish at a place above Andy Porters called the Scallon. Near it is a height called Ardna Haglisha, the chapel height. The cornerstones of the Scallon are there yet, 
It was a kind of a shelter, for I always heard there was a big sheet of cloth put up on whatever side the wind was coming from to give shelter to the altar. People came to the scallon from all ends of the parish, and all men took their commons, and when the mass was over, someone threw out the crag or the ball, and one side of the parish played the other, the Isle of Doha side against the Irish side. Each side tried to take the crag home, and they played through fields and everything, and the side that took home the crag had the game won. There was no prize or anything. Common was the whole game before this. It was the common game till about 40 or 50 years ago. When Father Shields came here from Clonkha in 1794, and after Father Cor died, he set about building the present chapel. Lots of people went to the chapel. Lots of people wanted the chapel built at the Scallon and Gary Duff, but Father Shields picked the place where the chapel stands now. The old people always called the priest Sagard Cor and Sagard Seal, Priest Cor and Priest Shields. The chapel was built in 1795 and enlarged in 1829. With the extensions of building, the chapel was badly in debt in Father O'Donnell's time. The collection at the chapel gate wasn't amounting to much, so Father O'Donnell put a levy of a guinea on every house in the parish, and the whole debt was cleared in a fortnight. When the bishop came to bless the bell, there was such a crowd that half of them couldn't get into the chapel, so the bishop put them all out in the yard and spoke to them through the window. He said the bell would be heard seven miles away, and when the devil heard it, he would fly. The bell was rung on the 9th of April, 1845, and that was the first Catholic bell to be heard in this parish from the time of the Reformation. But with all kinds of people ringing it, the bell got cracked and a new bell was got in 1870. It wasn't rung during frost for fear of cracking it. Phil Rennie and Donald Fad hoisted the bell up to the tower. Father McCullough promised them that the bell would be rung free for them at their own funerals. In 1829, Father Shields died, and he was succeeded by Father O'Donnell, the Waterloo priest, who was a parish priest here until 1856. Then came Father John Doherty, but he took a short life and died two years later. Father John McLaughlin of Torner Bratley was a parish, was a parish priest then from 1858 to 1873. He was succeeded by Father William Doherty, who lived until 1900. And then Father Maguire became parish priest. Father Maguire spent his whole life in the parish, coming here as curate in 1878 after his ordination in Rome and remaining here till he died parish priest in 1933. I don't remember so much about the curates of the parish. Father Cor, who had succeeded the Brahar in 1784, had no curate at all. Some of the wandering friars may have helped him now and again. In Father Cor's time, the ghost of Archie Rua had everyone about the parish frightened. He was seen driving two black horses up the Pinch Road at night. That was the main road to Derry in times gone by. One night, Father Cor was coming from a sick call, and Archie appeared and galloped home with him till they reached Father Cor's door. At that time, Father Cor lived with the Grants at Maharakari in Anna. He had the best black horse ever you saw on four feet, and when they reached home that night, the horse was as white as a swan in his own sweat. The Grants heard the galloping and guessed that Archie was afoot, so they closed the stable door. Only for that, the horse would have been rushed in and crushed the priest on the doorhead. Archie Rua was a tithe proctor by the name of MacLucas. One time he, he put a gallon keg of potching to his head at the Kellogg's mill and drank it till he burst himself. That was the way he died. His ghost was often seen after it, galloping about on horseback after night and hunting with dogs through the mills. The old people used to say that he tossed their footings of turf in the moss. He used to live at the bridge house and drank the potching because some girl turned him down. But the night he went home with the priest, Father Cor handed him a pass and that confined him to some 
one place and he never bothered anybody after. Father Shields took over chairman and built the big house that is there yet after the year 1820 or so. In order to make up the farm, seven families had to be evicted. He helped at the evictions himself too. I heard that he evicted one family after he had said mass and before he took his breakfast and he even carried a cradle out with an infant in it and left it on the street. The old people didn't want to talk about it. The place afterwards fell into a niece, fell to a niece of his who married Owen Doherty, a son of Nile Sean's. Chairman was a place that nobody ever thrived in. There was always a writ or a subpoena hanging over it. Father Shields served the priest, the parish alone for seven years till Friar Higgins came and during all that time there wasn't one ever died without the priest. Father Shields was a great was great with the landlord who owned the Glen House and a lot of the quarterlands in this parish and had 32 quarterlands in the county of Armagh. The old people called this man the Dalak Rua so he must have been named after O'Donnell. They also spoke of him as MacIntagher's Frankach for he was the son of a French priest who turned to be a Protestant. He used to come from Armagh on his holidays to the Glen House and his daughter had a bathing box down at the, str- at the Strand. Years later, when a son of his inherited the estate after the Dalak Rua died, the young fellow fell to drink and went to the bad completely. He ended up penniless and died in a sod house somewhere about Armagh. The old people always had a saying, the son's son suffers for the wrong done. The Dalak Rua was a man had great power. They say he could take a man from the scaffold. It was the Dalak Rua who offered Father Shields any part of his lands that he cared to pick to build a house on. Father Shields selected a spot beyond the glen where a man called Sean Jack lived. One day he called and told Sean to drive his pigs out of there that he wanted the place for a house. But Sean Jack followed him with a grape and hunted him. The next place he put his eye was on Terman. At some point Father Shields had Terman House let to the soldiers at a rent of £8 a year. A few years ago Reverend Dr Gallagher showed me a small mass bell that was found in a tree in Terman. It was a brass bell with a staple on it, top of it for a handle. It likely belonged to Father Shields for he was the only priest who lived there. In his time the Protestant minister was Reverend Chichester and in his last illness Father Shields called to see him every day. He attended the funeral too and when the coffin was passing him in the church door Father Shields reached over and cut the sign of the cross on the side of the coffin. People said that Reverend Chichester died a Catholic. He died in 1815. The Chichesters left Dresden in 1826. The first curate I heard of coming to Clonmany was a Father Paul Bradley in the last years of Father Shields' time. He lived in a house in Turbury. The house is still standing, but it's used as as sheep crow. Billy Bond McCarran's mother was keeping house to Father Shields at the time Father Bradley came. And on his first Sunday here, I believe he preached a great sermon entirely. Everybody spoke about the good luck the parish had to get such a fine speaker. Father Shields passed a remark to Billy's mother that it was all the worse for them, that now when they knew the rules of religion, they would have to live up to them. Father Shields would let nobody be buried in the new graveyard attached to the chapel until he would die himself, but it happened different to what Father Shields planned. Father Hagerty of Arda died before him, and he was the first grave to be opened. Round about the same time, Father Porter of Ballancleave was curate in Malin. He was there a year he was there the year of the dear summer in 1817 and times were so bad he had to come home for he couldn't get his support in Malin. My father said the dear summer was a worse famine in places than the famine of 1847. In 1817 the potatoes failed and there was no Indian meal coming in at the time for relief. It wasn't allowed in until after the free trade bill was passed during the famine of 47. Father Porter stayed at home all week 
and would leave Ballantleave on horseback and take lunch of oat and bread with him on Sunday mornings and say Mass in Malin and come home that night. Later he became parish priest of Malin. I heard, I heard the time he was there that he had an outfall with a woman in Malin about a cotter tenant that was in a cottage of his. She said she wouldn't be ruled by a priest. She was well off and had 28 head of cattle, four working horses and £1,100 in the bank. Father Porter said Charity was her name and that she'd be in Charity herself before long and that there would be briars growing on her headstone before seven years. Before that time was up, she went down in the world and the place was sold in a corn courthouse for £80 of debt. It went for 200 The man who bought the place didn't need the house and took the roof off it. When his men were cleaning out the place, they came on a briar growing in the old fireplace with three green leaves on it. The Waterloo priest, Father O'Donnell, came home from the wars at the same time as my grandfather got out of the Navy. He had two brother priests, but they were ordained and dead before he was ordained in 1818. The three brothers are buried in the one grave at Cock Hill. The Waterloo priest was a fine, upstanding man and a great horseman. He had a big chestnut horse home, home with him from the Battle of Waterloo and he called him Paddywhack. He lived at Cross Connell and later on at the cross. One day, one of the red coats was passing and struck Father O'Donnell's dog with his whip. When the housekeeper gave off to him about it, the soldier said he'd do the same to the dog's master. When she told Father O'Donnell, he put on his uniform and jumped on Paddywhack and overtook the red coat and Carrie Hole near Bunkrana and made him go down on his knees on the roadside and apologise. There was a mark of a wound on the horse's hip and the story was that during the wars, they ran short of food and cut a piece off the horse to eat. Father O'Donnell spent a quarter in Lifford Jail one time for not paying tithes. When he was released, the whole parish turned out to meet him out of face. It was the Glenhouse people who put him in jail, so he made a speech to the crowd out there and said that the day would come when there would be not one of the Glenhouse breed in this parish. Father William, William O'Donnell came here as curate after his ordination in 1841. He was from Glen Mahie and was a nephew of the Waterloo priest. He wasn't the same O'Donnell's, a sister's son, I think. He had a brother, a doctor, and another brother, Dominic, who lived at Cockhill. He spent his whole curacy in this parish and left here in 1868 to become a parish priest. He lived in a house in Gorton Hinson. The Wallsteads are there yet. He worked the farm and had a working horse and kept the boy. All the priests before this had land and worked it. Father O'Donnell went in greatly for cattle and used to send cattle for grazing and Neil Yermides in Effish Moor during the summertime. It was this Father O'Donnell who attended my uncle Owen when he died in 1842. There was another Father O'Donnell here before that as a curate, for it was a curate of that name who baptised Phil Brenny, and Phil got the pension the first day it came out in 1908, which would mean that he was born in 1838. All the noted singers were in the choir at the time. They had no harmonium, and the music they had was fiddles and flutes. John McElhinney of Ballon of Bow was master of the choir and would point out the notes with a pencil. Billy Andy Porter of Gary Duff used to play the fiddle. Away back in Father Shields' time, about 1820 and before, it was all flutes they had. Seamus Andreas McCool and his brother Charlie played the flutes at that time. They were great singers too. The Harkins of Clacarna had music in them. Music is a thing that follow tri- follows tribes of people. The parish always had a Protestant minister from the time of the Reformation up to 1873. The last was Reverend Thompson, who lived at Donnelly, the Glebe House. The Reverend Chichester lived at Dresden, and I heard of Reverend Lane, who lived at Bocarna and was choked by some fresh butter and oaten bread that went in with his breath. The Reverend Dobbs was also here between 1830 and 1840. 
About the time I was born, there was a man who lived in Mincha Lodge named Gibbs. He was married to one of the Harveys, the landlords, and he and Mrs. Gibbs used to go around visiting people in the Glen and give presents of tea to people they were great with. Gibbs was not a clergyman, but he was always talking about points of religion and arguing to show the Catholics were the idolaters. He was very good if there was a sickness in the house and as good as a doctor for people that had the fever. People took the tea, but that was as far as it went. The priests were against people taking presents from them. Father John Doherty of Ballyliffin was the first parish priest to set up in the present parochial house in the year of 1856. The place belonged to Terman, and the house at the time was an ordinary one, one story with kitchen and two rooms, slated with slates from McDade's Quarry on Ballantleave Hill. The same slates were on the scotch mill and the meal mill there. Father Doherty took a short life. He died in 1858. The present house was built by Father William Doherty in 1877, but there was a range of office houses there with thatched roof in my own time. Before John O'Doherty's time, the land with house and office houses were offered to a man for £17, but he didn't take it.